bandwidth for this week in photography is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This week on the show, iPhones infiltrate Flickr, Steve gets caught in a media storm, and a listener questions extravaganza. Right here on This Week in Photography, number 23. Welcome to yet another week of This Week in Photography, and uh, we're spread out uh, a little bit. Uh, we've got a little bit local, a little bit uh, uh, remote, so um, off in New York, we've got Steve Simon. Hey, Steve. Hey, guys. I've, I've missed you guys. It's I been know. a while. We were, I was like, where's Steve? When is he coming back? So I, I assume you've been out, out shooting heavily? Uh, I've been out shooting a little bit. You know, I've been traveling a little, watching a little TV. I've been, I've been busy. Watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> also here in the studio, as you may, may have guessed, is uh, Scott Bourne. Hey, Scott. Good day to you. And we've got an action-packed all-Q&A uh, season. Well, we got a little bit of news and a little bit of other stuff. It's but mostly just Q&A. Mostly just Q&A. We, had, we've had, we get so many questions that we finally realize that we're just going to have to stop every once in a while, probably once 1. in a while. 1.2 kabillion questions. Kabillion. So far. And that's with 26 zeros. And that's a really big number. That's yeah. bigger than an octillion. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's huge. So, uh, so we've got, um, got a little bit of news. Uh, Canon updates the uh, firmware for the, the EOS uh, 1DS Mark III. And uh, that's, that's very appropriate that they did that. Yeah. Is, is there anyone that? still using those cameras? What do you mean? That's the brand new <laughs> flagship camera. <laughs> oh, okay. Rough. Sorry. <laughs> and mine will be here Wednesday. <laughs> All right. It's okay. I, I, I will receive my Canon EOS 1DS Mark III, all 21 megapixels of it, on Wednesday. Now, and this is oh. going to be one of the things that we're going to, I think we're going to get Scott and Fred into the, in Frederick into the same uh, room with the, with the D3 and the, uh, and the Mark III. And uh, and I think we're going to just see how low light noise sensitive that D three is. Well, uh, <laughs> the, the, there's a, there's a, there's a there's something that people have been asking about is that if you're shooting at that higher resolution and then scaling down, whether the sixty four hundred uh, is better uh, on the Canon or the Nikon. So um, that's going to be whether the big pixels really matter or lots of pixels matter. And uh, I think we're going to need to come to a head and figure this one out. Well, I think this does answer the question as to whether or not I'm switching to Nikon. Yeah, you've nine thousand yeah. dollar camera body going into the bag means not switching to Nikon. <laughs> I'm still on the fence. I'm still on the fence. So we've got two. But Nikons. that'll be really interesting, though, if you guys yeah. actually did just we're, we're do gonna, the test. We're going to see what's gonna, when, gonna, when is it showing up? It will be here Wednesday. We're going to do an unboxing ceremony. And, uh, Are you going to have bagpipers? Yes, bagpipers and uh, Ansel Adams. You know, I, I don't really think you should open a camera box without bagpipers. No. I have I have a, like a little I have a little MP3 of bagpipers that I play when I open camera boxes. We got a little Ansel Adams shrine in the corner that we're going to open up near, and then uh, we'll go. Perfect. And then we'll we'll be we'll be really it's it's kind of frustrating to me because I I did this to myself, but the first few days of the camera's life have already been booked for shoot. Tests, not real photography. <laughs> so it's like, I'll, oh, I can't take it out shooting because I got this test and that test. So I'd be testing, you know, I like, testing it. Sorry, Scott. I, I like that new camera smell. You know what I'm talking about? 
Yeah. You know, when you, you know, take that's, it that's out of the box, spray. that's just a spray. Well, whatever it is, if they should. If it was a Glade plug-in, I would have it plugged all over my apartment. That's how geeky I am. But I, there is a smell, and maybe toxic, but it's it's delicious. No, it, it, it before before it, it actually before they spray it on there, it just it just smells like uh, you know body odor in Asia. And so then they, then they have to they have to actually spray it with something to kind of make it uh, make it seem like it's new. Yes. Although I, I I have to admit I only know the, the Nikon new camera smell, which is really nice. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Anyway, and, <laughs> so the um, and to move on, uh, Adobe is toying with standardizing the DNG RAW format. So um, uh, <laughs> if it were only up to them. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the. I mean it. Uh, it would be nice to see some standardization here. Um, I think everybody's trying to find some way to uh, to get Nikon and Canon are never going to do it because they because they have their own vested interest. Well, Nikon in particular because they charge money, as I recall, unless I, they've changed things. They for used, their software. They used to charge for their software. Do they Shysters. still charge? Well, they were giving it away with uh, the D three and D three hundred, but that I believe was a temporary measure. Ugh. Yeah, they were giving it away with a five thousand dollar camera. Let's mention that they were giving. That's sort of yeah. like you. You get well, you didn't free see TV me tr- with your twelve thousand dollar room in uh, Hawaii. And I it's will, radio. You can't see the finger quotes. Sorry. Yeah. yeah okay. The finger quotes. I, you know, I, I, uh, um, I, I think that their software is actually really good. You know, the, the Nikon software is really good. Um, but I do find that if I'm spending more than a couple grand on a camera or more than a thousand dollars on a camera i think it really should just ship with it it's software it's not it's not like they had to go out and machine another little piece that you're going to use you know i really don't i don't think based on my very informal but yet empirical study of this that many people rely on the canon software and probably a little more on the nikon because they bought it if they use it but i think most people still rely on things like Photoshop to do their, their conversion or Aperture or, you know, iPhoto or whatever they work with because right. they, they've got that software probably. I do have to say that the, uh, the software for Nikon, the big thing for me is what, that when, when, I, when I had a Nikon, uh, dealing with a lot of the fish eyes. Right, there was um, correction. And it was mathematically correct. Like they had figured out if you're using a Nikon lens and using this software, it, bam. It just pop- and it was worth it to be able to batch process my 10.5. And here's it. the problem. You're never going to get that with DNG. Now you can mm. get that with ACR. And you can get that with Lightroom. You can get that with, uh, with uh, Aperture. You can get camera profiles that work within those software programs, but you're not right. going to get it in DNG because DNG has got to be an open standard spec that specifically won't conform to the you know, the individualities of each camera. I just don't see how that part can work for DNG to be what it's supposed to be. That's And that's just one of the reasons why I think there's going to be trouble adopting it. Derek Story made a, a recently great argument for DNG that's the first one I've heard that I buy into, and that is, for those of you not using programs like Aperture where you can write the sidecar data into the file when you export it so that you just have one file, there's that messy you know, folder of XML data right. and a folder of the raw data. And when you convert things into DNG, that all gets baked into one raw file. So which, that is a strong makes argument. A, makes a big difference. But you're not getting the camera-specific stuff. And for Nikon shooters that do use the Nikon software, they do get to make some extra little special corrections. And I suppose the Canon shooters do, although I have to be honest with you. You know, I've purchased like 25 new Canon digital cameras in my life. I've never even un- opened that, that little 
software. No, I, yeah, I, I don't. I haven't used the camera. I've never loaded it on my computer, so yeah. I, I just I don't know anything about it. Right, right. Also, uh, iPhone is the most popular camera phone on Flickr. Didn't take them very long, did it? It it's kind of if you look at how kind of frightening. <laughs> if you look at how short a period it's been shipping. It's such a horrible little camera, too. It's not horrible. It's, it's a horrible little it, for camera. for a two megapixel camera. It's fine. It's a horrible little camera. It's not the it's not the the image. It's the it's the lens and everything looks I everything's know. got everything's got this huge fall off and it's all like a little soft. It's a two and megapixel it's, camera. I understand, but you look at you look at something like a Nokia, I, yeah. like an N ninety five. Yeah, with that and, beautiful five. Beautiful, and and the and the lens is better, and so you end up with a better image. And yet, fewer people use it. Could that be you know what the uh, could that the be justice of it all? Sorry, I was just going to say, and it was Derek Story you brought his name up earlier. But one of the most brilliant tips I got was to use the iPhone camera when you're parking your car at the airport, for example, hubba, hubba. and take a pic. Take a picture of where you park. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good idea. Well, the the problem oh, is totally. Works. I keep bringing this up, because, but it's true. I rem- you remember the Jaiku party, right, Alex? We were at the Jaiku party. Did you yep. come? Um, you I, came late. I did. It had it, they had the fake snow that really right, grossed right. me out. So we were at the Jaiku party. I was out front early with Leo and Robert Scoble, and they were both showing off their N95s. This is a pre iPhone delivery, right? And they're like, oh, check this out. It's got a five megapixel camera, and, and Leo's phone crashes. And Scoble yeah. gets his N95 Well, let me see. He can't even get his to boot up. So, yeah, it's got a better camera, but you just can't ever use it. There's that. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get email from N95 fanboys now. I'm sorry, but it's just it's what happened. No, I, I love, I love, I, I have to admit, though, I, we, we were working with some guys that, that build a lot of models in Zimbabwe, of course, and, and they they build 3D models, and they and I was asking, what do you take the photos of, of all the buildings that you're bottling for Google Earth? And it's like, N95. Oh. You know, that was the, uh, that was the camera that they, uh, they wandered around with. That's all they needed. And, um, and I was so, when I saw the images, it's just so much higher. I mean, I, all I use my iPhone for, um, for pictures is just, I need to remember that. I need to remember this book. I need to remember where I'm at. I need to remember, you know, whatever it is. It's just a memory jogger um, because the images drive me um, crazy. Batty. So, uh, so anyway, so um, also uh, being released uh, in new uh, Microsoft Expression Media 2. Uh, does anyone use this? Well, you know, back back in the day, iView Multimedia Pro, was, which was amazing, was my was my photo tool of choice in terms of gathering my images. And our buddy Joe Shore, who works on Aperture, I believe, had something to do with that. Right. Or no, he might have had something to do with the competitor to that. But um, there's several people involved in stuff today that came from that. But right. uh, Microsoft bought them out, and now you get it as part of Office. And I. I you know, using Aperture or Lightroom, you really don't need it, in my opinion, although I still think Ron Brinkman uses it or something like it. Uh, he couldn't be with us today. But, um, you know, I, I think if you're into Office and it, it is cross-platform, it's a great program. When it was iView, it was one of the best. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, definitely uh, definitely check that out. Any other big news uh, for the uh, for the week? I think we're uh, I think we covered it largely through most of that stuff there. So um, uh, also site of the week. And this one is a pick from Steve. So, uh, Steve, uh, you, you picked uh, it's mediastorm.org. Can you tell us a little bit about it? 
Yeah, mediastorm.org is probably on the cutting edge of multimedia with regards to sort of documentary and journalistic pieces. And um, it's kind of the go-to site. I think a lot of newspapers now are kind of panicking because they realize that, you know, maybe their their readership is dwindling and we have to have a website presence and we need to have multimedia on there. And if you go to MediaStorm, there's some really, really kind of innovative ways of using still images combined with sound, combined with video in a very sort of creative uh, presentation, with, which ultimately uh, really is just about storytelling. And there's some, some powerful um, uh, stories on there by some great photojournalists. So I, I definitely would, would check it out and, um, and take a look at, uh, at some of the stories. A couple of the stories on there that are, are really good that you guys might um, really like to see uh, as, photo, as, as photographers. Um, evidence of my existence. Um, Talks, uh, it's a very personal uh, uh, journal of uh, the, ph- the photojournalist uh, Jim Scalzo's uh, work and life. And then there's this uh, amazing um, uh, uh, piece by Olivier Rob- Jobard, who's a French photojournalist, called Kingsley's Crossing. And if you watch it, uh, I think you'll be compelled to continue watching it and finishing it. Um, and, and it just is amazing the, the time that uh, Olivier put in to create this, this piece. But uh, definitely uh, time well spent when you see it. Really, um, uh, really well-designed site. You know the site just is so fluid, and, and and it's the kind of it's it's kind of that web 2.0. Everything kind of pops up. I don't I don't know what they're building it in, but it's really worth checking out just for the design of it as well. Uh, I know I I um I fell I fell uh, into uh, close up. You know, um, um by Martin uh, Scholler, and uh, uh, it's just I love close ups. You know of, mm. of people's faces, and so um, it just did a very interesting uh, process, and it's just very easy to f- figure out what's going on on the site. So definitely worth uh, checking out both for the the photo essays, which are amazing, and the way they're putting together all the media, as well as just the design. So um, that's the pick. Yeah, and we'll have kind the. Of, uh, kind we'll kind have- Go ahead. Steve. Oh, I was just going to say it's kind of, um, in many ways, kind of uh, maybe the next step for photographers sort of that are wanting to kind of uh, create something beyond just the still image, but maybe combine uh, a narrative. Uh, could be voice, could be interviews with family members. If you wanted to create some sort of a multimedia piece, uh, family album, so to speak, and uh, it, it might just give you some ideas. And also look at the photography because the photography is is what drives everything yeah. on this site. Photography first. We'll have a link to it in the show notes, which will be available at twipphoto.com. So if you're trying to wonder where this link is as you listen to the podcast, just run over to twipphoto.com. And Aaron does the most masterful show notes on the planet. He is literally the world's best show note taker. He took the title away from Vinny Ferrari. I hate to tell you this, Vinny, but found someone that's just a, just a hair better than you. And I mean, it's just a hair, but it is a hair nonetheless. And uh, Aaron has done a great job, and he's got all that stuff for you. It'll be up on the blog Friday or Saturday. The show usually comes out same day. We're recording on Friday. You usually hear it Friday, but the notes will be up no later than Saturday usually, so you'll get that link right there on the blog. And we have, uh, we are in week two of the uh, the two week, uh, our two week challenge of the color red. Week and, two. Uh, this, is on, this is on Flickr. We've opened up a new 
contest pool because people were having trouble with the tagging thing out. It's very complicated. So apparently it is for some people. So I'm what I'm amazed is is like 700 people have joined the contest pool because of course that could have something to do with the fact they were giving away freaking everything. <laughs> I mean, you get Aperture, you get Lightroom, you get a book by Ron, you get a book by our guest last week on HDRI, you get DP Matt. DP Matt. So, I mean, it's like $4 billion worth of prizes. And uh, so apparently this is, you know, usually we get two or 300 people participating. Now there's yeah. like 700. Yeah, per- so perhaps so. prizes are more important to people than I realize. <laughs> so we're just going to keep on turning that volume up. So, and and 4,000 people, by the way, we've blown past the 4,000 member mark in the in the standard Flickr discussion group. 5,000, here we come. And we've got uh, more than 1,200 in the critique forum as well. Uh, so. It's like 14, isn't it? Is it 1,400? I, I, I think it's up to 1,400. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's it's hard because if we looked at it yesterday. Yeah, it changes it on a daily basis. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, you guys are responding very well to the Flickr forums. We appreciate it. And you're keeping them clean. We appreciate that. And you're helping each other when we can't be available because we're all working on tons of stuff for the show each week. Yeah. So the fact that you all pitch in and help each other is making this more than just a podcast and a blog and a video cast and a screencast. It's a community. So run over to Flickr and join up. And you can link, get to the links on our blog at twipphoto.com. Also, we have the poll is still running on the on the website. And uh, uh, we, we asked people, how do they listen to no, Twip? No. Let's just get this correct. Let's be specific. And we asked which areas no, they listen no, to Twip. You asked. I asked. I asked. This is your question. And oddly enough, I want no. I want no responsibility. And for this oddly question. enough, uh, we had sixty-five percent listen to it on their iPod, which, by the way, includes iPhone. Some people because, emailed. We should me. have split that out to iPhone. Yeah, I, e- people I emailed me and complained that we didn't list iPhone. Yeah, so have. the iPhone people are voting iPod. So yeah. that's so. So sixty-five percent are on iPod or iPhone, and a distant twenty-seven percent are um, are actually listening to it via iTunes. Which I, to be honest with you, I thought was going to be flipped. The total between the two um, is exactly what I expected. Um, uh, 92, 92 to ninety-five percent are on one of the two, which would mean that. Most of them could listen to uh, an AAC, mm-hmm. but uh, but we're talking about some possible changes to that that whole process. Yeah. So I, I, I'm I'm just sitting silent. <laughs> uh, what we'll have you send all of your uh, email questions about this or your concerns to the TWIP support email, which bypasses me entirely and goes right to Joe. Joe Lindsay, Alex's brother, handles that. You scream at him. And then, not, not at me. And, and Joe, and then, and then, he's and limping then, in then, here, by the way. And then we're, we're going to set up an auto an auto thing that says, thank you for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so, a, it's a free show. You get it how we give it to you. Sorry. It, mean, is, it is my artistic. We, we had a discussion about it. I, I see it as my artistic expression. You know, and, and, and this is, this is that the way I'm expressing Alex it. Alex Lindsay speaking. <laughs> <laughs> so um so now we have we're the meat of the show here we're uh, we're coming together and we've got the listener q a so once again we just we get inundated with these it's q a baby and uh and we we needed a little bit more a little bit more help uh to to do it and the three of us just isn't enough so we're actually going to bring our producer aaron mailer into the discussion aaron are you there 
I'm here. There we go. Yay, Aaron. And Aaron is the one that uh, builds the, the show notes that you see uh, on the website, as well as building... I mean, if you think the show notes are good, you should see the notes. The only reason we sound like we know anything about what we're talking about is because Aaron writes these really amazing notes that sit in front of us. So um, so anyway, so uh, so we brought Aaron in. We've got... Uh, he's been kind of working through some of these things, and uh, so we'll have him interjecting as he, see, he sees fit um, as we go through some of these questions. So the first First question uh, coming up here is uh, this is from uh, Brian uh, Clarity, I think. Clarity? That's as close as, as I close can. as I'm going to get. Anyway, uh, uh, has um, asked. He says, "I purchased Aperture as soon as it was released, but light Merlin like Merlin Man. Uh, I'm a big fan of a 12 inch PowerBook, uh, which even uh, after a hack runs Aperture really slowly. Um, can you guys speak about the equipment you are the equipment used for your workflow? I know Scott is a Mac Pro. Um, uh, is it possible to make a Mac Mini or MacBook usable for day to day workflow with Aperture? I can or answer this one really in one word." Yes. The word is no. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait a second. Now, what, I mean, are you, what are you using, Steve? Well, actually, you know, I've, I've just been doing uh, a bunch of these little Aperture uh, University tour stops, and I've been using uh, kind of a, a couple of generations old uh, MacBook Pro. Ah. And whereas it has been true in previous Apertures that it's been really slow and a little frustrating to use, um, I've been doing these presentations completely in Aperture on this kind of older MacBook Pro, and I have had no problems whatsoever. As a matter of fact, you know, with the, the quick preview option now in this new yeah. Aperture, um, it's faster than another program that I would often use to edit, which is Photo Mechanic, which is Lightning Speed. And the new Aperture with this quick preview mode is is really really fast so but, but the question um, was steve can oh we use sorry a, the question was can we use a power book or a macbook you're talking about oh, a MacBook. or mac mini or macbook so this or is mac this mini. is one yeah. down yeah. from the uh see the macbook the pro, mac pro even an older one is going to have a lot more mm-hmm. gpu and that's the big distinction here is that aperture now i will say that i think that aperture 2 is the performance on aperture 2 on smaller machines is no far doubt. uh Far superior to Aperture, you know, one or one point five. So, so the uh, so I think it's it's a lot better. I haven't actually tested it on a Mac Mini or MacBook. Uh, we don't. We have a Mac Mini, but I we have a Mac. Aperture. We have a, a newer MacBook in my office, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's it'll work, right? But you wouldn't want to do any serious editing on it, right? And so, I mean, if you're absolutely stuck on using an older PowerBook or a Mac Mini, uh, you know, you, you know, you have to look at Lightroom. You have to, you have to look at something that runs a little bit less GPU dependent. Now, right. if you can move your way up to even an older MacBook Pro, then Steve's right. You can do anything you need to do now with the quick preview mode. Right. MacBook Pros on up, and and when Aperture One first came out, even a Mac Pro wasn't a guarantee. Yeah, forget about it. You yeah. had to have but the right. GPU, you had to write the right graphics card. But right. now that's really they've they've optimized. I just spent you know all day at Apple at the mothership talking to the Aperture development team this week, and they really have optimized the database. It's yeah. it's the same database they've always used, but they've really optimized it and they've taken away a lot of the limits. Things are really fast, and uh, you know. But but still, the reality is this is just truth. You know, being a fan of the program that I am. 
when you're dealing with a GPU rather than CPU dependent process, you're you're going to need a beefier card than is available in most Mac Minis. The, the reality is is that if you yeah if you want to play it safe, you know, a, a CPU is something that we have. You know, we're kind of almost peaking in in some ways. I mean, CPUs don't change the way that GPUs change anymore. Um, but but what we get with a CPU, a powerful CPU, is uh, and 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 the average CPU um, is the ability to manage a lot of the stuff relatively effectively um, to get the most performance uh, you know most people look at the future and say GPU is the way to go and we're seeing more and more GPU acceleration in even the smaller machines that are coming out so I think Apple you know what it has focused itself on with a lot of the applications not just Aperture um, is we're going to be very very heavy on the GPU because that's the area that's going to continue to grow in performance um, I think that it, that and it's too bad Fred isn't here to, to talk about it but uh, yeah. um, I think that uh, that Adobe has been a little bit more conservative saying we're going to you know still base a lot of our stuff heavily on a CPU and I think that leaves you with this if it's a smaller uh, uh, if, if you have a smaller machine, Lightroom may run a little bit smoother than than Aperture. Um, but as soon as you get over the the very small Mac Mini or MacBook, uh, I think that Aperture runs great, and I think they run okay on those. Yeah, you know, I know Brian. Brian wants us to you know help him uh, with answering this question, but you know the fact is, I think both programs, for instance, are available as as free trials. You know you the go. new version two and there's so many configurations as we know, both with you know Mac Minis or MacBooks and how much RAM they have, yada yada. You know the best way to really do it is to just you know take a little bit of time, take an hour, download both, and and try them out and and see what the new program will do on on your computer and and see how happy you you would be using it and see what it would look like try to load a bunch of images don't just put 10 images in and say oh it works fine yeah. what, what put, it, really, put, put a couple, couple thousand put in a couple thousand and try to do some adjustments and the other thing is is to remember that one of the best ways to accelerate any computer is having lots of RAM yep so both of these compute both Lightroom and Aperture like to have lots of RAM all computers like to have lots of RAM it's like oxygen so uh, as much RAM as you can afford to put into any computer will, will make most of your applications run better faster especially things like Photoshop that wants to cache uh, a lot of information, and it's either going to do it in your RAM or it's going to do it on your hard drive. Uh, you know, you the more RAM you can add, the better. So, next question. Now, this is from uh, Jim Person, and uh, he says, I have a question about filters and which filters I should buy. Say, for example, I am buying circular polarizers. What is the major difference between the different brands except for the price? If I buy a really expensive filter, what am I, what am I paying uh, the premium for? Do I need coated or multi-coated filters? Thank you. Keep up the good work. Scott? Steve? I, uh, well, I, I'm going to let Steve go first. All right. Well, you know, this is a question that I think um, has always been a leap of faith for me in that, you know, being a professional, you want to buy the best possible equipment whenever you can. And obviously, if you spend a lot of money on your, your, your lenses, you don't want to put a cheap piece of glass in front of it. And by that, I mean thinking that cheaper is going to represent maybe less quality. The bottom line is, I mean, obviously, the, the high-end manufacturers, the, the quality control and the quality, the history of quality is there. Um, as far as doing an actual real test, um, I've never really done it. But I suspect that you, you get what you pay for. Whether or not you're going to see it in your final uh, image, I don't know. And, and one last thing I'll add to that is um, I finally took my protection filter off my lenses um, 
Yay. It was maybe a, maybe a bit of a stupid thing to do. It's sort of like when my grandmother took the plastic off the couch. I mean, life's too short. These are tools. <laughs> why not? Why not just you know yeah, the use love. them to the best uh, of the ability? But the bottom line was, I did not notice any difference at all, all right. with a high quality uh, sort of. But the know, salesmen UV- who who rely on being able to add that to the package noticed the difference, Steve. You're right about that. I think that. So so th- that's what I'm going to say, Scott. I'd love to hear what you have to I'm say. I'm a filter snob. I'm sorry. There's only okay. one kind of filter in my bag. It's made by a company called B plus W. I know it. Schneider Optics. I have L series glass. That's all I use. These are expensive lenses. I'm not putting a piece of cheap plastic over my five thousand dollar lens. It just doesn't make any how sense. How much? How much do these uh, cost? You know, they started the about a hundred and twenty up to two hundred bucks, three hundred bucks, depending on size. The bigger the filter, the more it costs. But most of the people listening to the show are going to be using filter sizes in the neighborhood of a hundred and twenty bucks. These are made of glass, optical glass, not plastic. That's one main difference. Secondly, they are multi coated, and multi coated is important. Uh, referencing um, Jim's question because that reduces flare. And when you add filters, one of your big problems with cheap filters is you get lens flare. Now, lens flare, by the way, doesn't have to manifest itself as these giant stars that show up in your image. Lens flare is most often manifested by simply a, a, a reduction in terms of data getting to the sensor that's valuable data. You, you just get a little bit of ghosting or you, you get a little bit of washed out picture that you may not even notice unless you look carefully. So that's the kind of flare I'm talking about. And, 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 and for a test, Steve, something I've done is I've taken the cheap plastic filters, and all you have to do, you can do this at your camera store. Just bring an 8.5, 11 by 11 piece of white copy paper with you that you know to be white, that has a pure white shade to it, and lay the plastic cheap filter on top of it, the circular polarizer, and then lay the B plus W on it, and look at the color difference. You'll see a color shift in the cheap plastic one, and that's But your- Scott, let me, let me just ask you this, because, you know, granted, yes, there are cheap filters, but then there are other manufacturers that are less expensive than the Schneider company, which is arguably the best, you know, optical uh, manufacturer so of filters. So you're referring to something like Hoya? Or- yeah, the Hoya. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to get there, Steve. You're a step Okay, I'm sorry. Ahead. See, I'm impatient. The Hoya... The- the Hoya multi-coated fi- uh, filters are just a step below the B plus Ws. They're about anywhere from 30%, 40% less money, and they will do a good job for you. They are glass. My rule is you don't have to buy B plus W, even though that's what I like, but you do have to buy glass filters. they got to be glass. If they're not glass, I don't like them. If they're plastic, just ask yourself, why did I buy this expensive lens <laughs> to put a piece of plastic in front of it? Because then, yeah. you know, you just kind of that's just a step backwards. Yeah, and Jim, I'll I'll throw one more thing out in, out in front of you, Jim. I have never been disappointed, you know, buying the best of anything when it comes to photography. I have been disappointed uh, when I haven't. Um, and you know, there you go. I mean, uh, but again, you know, not everyone can afford to spend all that money on on this stuff. I, I have my. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Aaron. I was, might throw in one thing too, just some personal experience. Um, I use Hoya multi-coated filters. I try to stay on the higher end of the Hoyas, uh, particularly for my L-class glass. But uh, one thing you'll find pretty quickly as soon as you start to clean one the first time, if you don't buy like Formula MC, which is a multi-coat cleaner, it will get a really weird smudging, smearing effect on it, which is pretty disconcerting the first time. And first time I ran into that, I did a little research and found out that you really do need to have a multi-coated rated uh, cleaner. And Formula MC is the one I tend to use. Could you provide a link in the show? Show notes on that, Aaron? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Formula MC. I'm going to mark that down. That seems like something that Alex would get to help him with his hair growth. 
<laughs> I've given up on my hair growth. I have a hole in my head, and it's going to stay there. Hi, I'm Alex, and I tried Formula MC. Look at my big, long, it, flowing locks. It cleans, right it cleans glass and grows, grows hair. hair. <laughs> also, uh, one one uh, place that uh, Aaron you you checked out was um, for buying these filters uh, is twofilter.com. Yeah, twofilter.com. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, okay, I've never had a bad experience with them. They're Their good. prices are frequently pretty low. I've used yep. them. They're good. Yeah. So um, we'll put that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I have to admit, from, from, from my part, I have a tendency to, uh, I get, I, I often get uh, either don't do anything in front of it because I, you know, don't want to have anything in front of it. Or when I'm in Africa, a lot of times I put cheap, blend, cheap, uh, uh, filters on the front, and usually they're just UV filters, and all they're there to do is make sure my, I don't get scratched, you know. And uh, and then when they get scratched, I have I usually have two of them, so I just <laughs> <laughs> well at nine dollars a piece at your local Ritz, that's affordable. I don't know. I guess I, I think of them as cheap, but I they're about seventy or eighty dollars, so maybe I'm not getting the cheap cheap ones. You're so. getting ripped off, my friend. No, no, they're not. They're not nine dollar ones. There are nine dollar ones. I don't get those ones. I mean, I'm just saying so, if you if they're cheap and you're paying, see, that's well, the, here's, the, here's the other side of this coin. It's you, I'm glad you mm-hmm. brought that up. A lot of times you'll buy a store. Brand in fact, if you go to one of the big national chains like Ritz or Wolf or one of those places, you ask for a filter, they'll by default give you a store brand. Right. And um, often it's within 10, 15% of something like a B plus W. Right. And you're like, whoa. I mean, what? And you, I don't have any idea what that is. Right. I don't know about the quality of the store brand. And so a lot of times people, you know, are penny wise and pound foolish. You, yeah. You, you know, if you're going to be within 20 bucks of the good stuff, and you got twenty bucks in your pocket. Why not? Especially yeah. once again, Aaron made the the comment. He, you know, for his L glass, he really likes to stay on top of the Hoyle line. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about. If you got L glass and and in in Nikon, uh, what's the equivalent, to Steve? Um, it's all L glass, really. Oh, thank I, you so I'm much. Sure. <laughs> That's that that softball was the, the given ED to you. Glass, right over, the ED glass, the ED I, glass. I believe. Uh, yeah. th- that if you've got the high end glass, and, you know, and you're 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 looking at a thing that's twenty bucks more. Why not? I mean, you're going to you're gonna get a much better result, usually. And I don't put any other filter, by the way, on my camera. The, one of the Jim's questions we didn't answer, what filters? The only filters I ever use are circular polarizers. I don't believe in the whole, you know, skylight and all that crap. And plus... Oh, uh, you don't? You don't protect your lenses? I, 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 once again, I just don't I don't think it's necessary. I use my lens hood. That offers quite a bit of, print, of protection. You're not my grandmother. I'm not your grandmother, and I've never, by the way, had plastic on my couch. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I order the lens, I order the filter with it, and it goes right on the front when it comes out of the box. Well, <laughs> as far as go. protecting the glass, I, I, uh, and, one other thing you might consider too, just um, if you have a, an array of different lenses, and, and Steve and Scott might have you know might differ on this, I'm not sure, but uh, maybe consider buying your lenses or your filters a little bit larger and using stepping rings um, so that you could use those across a wider array of uh, lenses over time. Because you may swap out your lenses, you may add more lenses later, and a, a good circular polarizer is an expensive polarizer especially if you buy a large diameter one it's a good way to that's, save that's a, it's a good way to save money but it does increase your likelihood of lens flare yeah it yeah, certainly yeah, does the other thing the other the lens thing that i would too. say um i mean i basically you know like scott i don't use filters i don't even use a polarizer i, I basically have them as as protecting uh you know just as an added protection for the lens but um uh one thing i would be be careful with if you've got wide angles and extreme wide angle lenses and you need a filter um, a lot of companies make a slimline version of the filter because occasionally with the the, the thicker filters you're going to get kind of a vignetting effect that you'll be able to see so you Good just point. have to be a little bit careful with that all right next question 
This is from Zach LeBlanc. That is such a great name. Zach LeBlanc. Um, Hello. I have a question I'm hoping uh, that you can go over on the podcast. I'm interested in geotagging my photos, um, but was having trouble finding hardware options uh, that work with Macs. I run uh, 10.5.2. Um, is the Sony GPS CS1 pretty much the only way to go, or are there any other units that you might recommend? Um, Aaron, you, you did a lot of research on this. What did you find? Um, actually, the I did a lot of research just recently, um, and just uh, just last week received my uh, data logger. I've been kind of a GPS nerd for years. I mean, I've I've had I don't hey, know, Aaron, different Aaron, levels. Bef- yeah. mm-hmm. before you go on, what is geotagging exactly? Uh, geotagging, um, it's just something you're going to run into on Flickr a lot, too, which is kind of one of the best places to see it. Um, geotagging is the process of recording with a GPS uh, your location as you're shooting. Uh, and I'll clarify this a little later. There's ways to do it without a GPS as well, but... Uh, if you use a GPS data logger or just a GPS that can record a track log and you take it with you while you're shooting, it's constantly recording your geographic location while you're shooting. And what you do is you synchronize the clock between your camera and your GPS. When you get back, you download the data from your GPS, and there's a whole bunch of different tools out there now that will take that location data, find the closest log point uh, in the timeline that fits when that photo was taken, and embed that information in the photo. So uh, the exit into, standard into the EXIF, right? Yeah, the EXIF standard actually has fields in there for longitude, latitude, I think potentially altitude, and a couple others as well. I'll have to check sure. that. Sure. But um, the end result, though, is that you can then use other tools to, uh, to when you create your galleries, to carry that information with it. And you can have your photos spread across Google Earth or Google Maps uh, or link to maps you know, from the photos themselves. So you, you get that kind of spatial relationship that goes with the photo. And the really neat thing with Flickr, there, there's tons of people doing that. And Flickr will honor those EXIF fields if you embed that data before you upload your photos. So you can go to a big map. It looks very much like Google Maps. So it exists Yahoo's Maps, actually, on there. And uh, you can do these very detailed searches where you can ask for photos taken within a certain span of time and a certain geographic area and that type of thing. A couple of weeks ago, for instance, I went up to Washington, D.C. Uh, to shoot the cherry blossoms, which I kind of missed, unfortunately. But um, one of the things I did a couple nights before I left was I went on there, went to the D.C. area around the tidal basin on the map, and I had it give me every photo anybody had submitted in the last three days uh, that was in that geographic area so I could kind of get a sense of what was up with the cherry blossoms just really? to see if someone had shot some recently along those lines. Right. The, the amount of geeking out one can do with, uh, with a combination of a GPS and a camera is pretty well, tremendous. And, and I, think that, I think that what's interesting is, is that this is, once again, like HDR. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's kind of, it seems geeky right now. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think I th- I personally think that this will be another one of those features that get that slowly gets added to nearly every pocket camera out there. Um, yeah. That it's going to keep track. You know, GPS is going to be something um, uh, that everybody has on their cameras five years from now or, or whatever because it it just makes sense. You know, you want to know what this you know, you want to know this information. You want to know the um, you know what you can do there. I you know I get excited about it. Now, another thing that that is, and I think we probably have covered it a little bit in the past, but uh, when you start looking at this geotagging uh, and you combine it with what Microsoft's doing with Photosynth, you get into these very exciting things where you have lots of people just constantly uploading stuff and Photosynth putting it together into, you know, uh, searchable and uh, tourable um, environments. And so it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I don't know if you know, answered the question. What the, specifically, the question was, is, is, is the Sony GPS CS1, uh, is it any good? 
Actually, um, I, I gather the unit is okay. I have heard some bad things about its interaction with the Macintosh um, and somewhat a little bit about its sensitivity as well as far as signal. In my research, what I ended up uh, purchasing was um, it's AMOD, AMOD. I'm not sure if it's said as AMOD or AMOD, but it's the model AGL 3080. And a company called Samsons.com uh, sells it here in the U.S. Um, $65, I think, was the price I paid for it. The thing that was particularly nice about it is a lot of the GPS data loggers out there that you look at, I um, can't think of some of the other names offhand, but they tend to require Windows-specific drivers. I mean, they, they've actually done some kind of unique driver for it, and so there may or may not be Macintosh support. The AMOD's really sensitive um, as a receiver, but also very sensible in its design. It acts as a uh, USB flash drive, essentially, which is pretty universal. There's nothing about it, then, that makes it specific to Mac, Windows, Linux, or That's anything. Awesome. So when it records the logs, it just writes a text file to it. It, it names it uh, with a timestamp of, of the starting log. And uh, you can adjust whether you want it writing every second, every 10 seconds, whatever. Of course, the longer you make the, the delay between writes, the, the more use you're going to get out of that memory and the longer it'll run. Uh, I think you can run it for a solid month, actually, if you use 10-second <laughs> logs. So your batteries will go out about every 18 hours. I think, I think I'm getting one of those for my next trip to Africa. That, that, it's that really is, fantastic. I just, but, you know, I what think you we, mentioned – oh, sorry. I was just going to mention, to add on to what Aaron said, I mean, that is exciting as a research tool, because if you have an assignment somewhere, you can kind of check out kind of a couple of days ago or just yesterday what where you're going looks like, which yeah. is mm-hmm. uh, kind of cool. I, I think, I think I, this, is, this is an important segment on the show, and here's why. Based on all the podcasts we've done so far, I thought we had probably geeked out as much as possible. And, and, and but it just turns out I was wrong. Oh, this, we can just keep on digging in there. This is clearly no the limit. geekiest stuff I've ever heard. I got my shovel. I got my shovel. As if, I don't, as if I don't have enough to worry about. Now I've got to worry about my geotag. <laughs> it's all about the geotag. All right. Next question here. We've got um, this is from Rich uh, Bianch- Bianchini. And uh, he said, will you please, 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 he's listening to too much Smiths. Three, three, please. Too much Smiths there. Um, Will you please, please, please share your backup strategy with us? So that is the, uh, I mean, that's the, that's the, he has a lot of other things he has, but but that's the core of the question. So what is your backup strategy? Steve, what's your backup strategy? Well, um, I'll just, I'll make it simple. I'm using Aperture and I'm using uh, managed libraries that are maintained on separate hard drives. And I, I'm using managed libraries just, I think, temporarily because having a reference library, I think, ultimately will make more sense. And I can get into the differences later. But basically, in Aperture, when you have a managed library, you can create a vault that makes an identical backup that if something happened to the original library, you can restore it. And then I will make a second vault on another uh, hard drive and keep that off-site. So I basically have a minimum of three different versions of my Aperture library, two of them sort of on-site and one of them off-site. I'm now looking into the idea of hard drives and looking at RAID systems, be it, you know, this whole RAID 5 idea, maybe you guys can speak a little more to it. I've heard that, you know, that is maybe the best way to go in terms of if there's one one disk gets corrupted, like the Drobo, um, you know, it'll be repaired. But I have also heard that if two disks get get corrupted, then you're in major trouble. So should you put all your stuff on, on one multi-disk uh, uh, RAID? I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. So I'm, I'm keeping it rather simple at this point, but ultimately, as, as archives grow, I think we're going to have to look at, at real uh, bigger, bigger strategies. Scott? Well, I use a similar system. However, I've just recently 
switch my vault because most of my images are stored in Aperture's and then on the vault, which is Aperture's automatic backup system. And I can verify that it works once on purpose for a test in an article I wrote and once not so much on purpose. <laughs> really not sure what I did wrong, but I was thankfully able to restore my entire multi-hundred thousands of images library, which are spread across, uh, I believe, 19 hard disks on my desk yes. right now um, back in. But I just got a Drobo. And uh, you don't need RAID 5, Steve, because Drobo uses a proprietary system that emulates RAID 5. And by the way, three of the four drives, that's right, three of the four drives can fail. I don't understand how that works. It, and neither do I, but we've been testing the crud out of it. And I walked by just randomly the other day and yanked a drive out. Just While he was talking to me. You just <laughs> pull it out. <laughs> Alex was there. I just and yanked it out. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm still, my, my tongue is still healing. <laughs> I bit it. I was like, <laughs> in the middle of doing like, you know, motion graphics and final cut editing and nothing on the screen froze. All the artist didn't flinch. The artist didn't flinch because we'd, <laughs> we'd already tested it in front of the yeah, artist. No, I, I, I was like... And, and uh, it, it, it's self-healing and it, it uses a proprietary system put together by the geniuses that run drove. And by the way, these guys come from big network storage backgrounds. And they also studied a lot of lizards. They did. They pulled a lot of tails off the ends of lizards that's and right. saw how they grew back. And they were like, you that's know, right. I bet you we could do that with data. <laughs> anyway, that's what I'm doing. My vaults are now on a Drobo, Steve. Now, I'm, now what about the USB, too? Because they don't have a FireWire connection, They, do, they do not, which is why I would not recommend, based on my limited experience over the last week, uh, which is yeah. the only time I've had it, I would not recommend using the Drobo as a primary drive. But since okay. since the vault is merely your backup, and since you're only backing up stuff that's changed if you're running the vault properly in Aperture, and in, and if you're using Lightroom or something else, then you're going to only use incremental backup strategies provided through some third-party uh, backup software, then it's not important that it's USB 2.0 or FireWire 800 because it's just backup. It's just, right. you know, it's going out there. And then I have a my, the third tier of my backup is that I have an automator script that runs a, a, a a call to my tape backup in Minnesota where I have a um, an old server farm I've had forever and we still run everything to tape backup as a, a redundancy uh, thing and to get it come not so not even off site but like out of state um, mm-hmm. so I have that and and um, you know I've I've learned that you cannot trust putting your images on hard disks and letting them sit on the shelf because the hard disks on the shelf don't like it the 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 disks fail in fact often if you have if you don't spin them up every three months or so uh, a lot of people report failures and i spoke with the drobo engineers about this and they agreed that you know hard disk drives are not meant to sit there idle and what happens is the grease starts to drip and the the, the platins make contact and they're really they're just sad yeah they're very sad they're very sad no they droop and them. they're sad and they, they don't feel they feel useless they don't feel loved so, so hard disks are not a a a option for archiving your images unless they're constantly spinning and do you think guys like buying the cheapest uh drives you can just making sure they're redundant by twoing it two at a time is, is the best strategy or are, are there certain brands well, and so on there's we're, we're, that we buy a lot of drives and, and we do put them on the shelf but we do spin them up and so um we, fairly regularly we spin most of our drives up. we have about 150 drives you know that have uh data on them and anything that's really important you know is got is in two places you know nothing exists here unless it's exists in two places and so um there's usually two but you get two drives we buy them at amazon you know they're seagates they're 112 dollars each or whatever and um and that's two for 500 gigs and we put you know we put the data on both of them and 
the, you know, knock on wood, the the statistically the chances of both drives going down um, are low as long as we keep on you know uh, buzzing them up. Now, my my approach that's happening actually starting this um, uh, this week, I'm, I'm actually droboing as well, and um, and uh, we're going to put a drobo in uh, the office here and then a drobo at my house, and then those will basically be syncing every night. So. The nice thing about that is it means also that I can save stuff to the Drobo here, you know, be working off of it here, and then plug it in, plug one in at the house, and within a day or two, they're both, there's parity between the two. Um, it also means, of course, that there is um, some backup. So, you know, it's great that your drive is RAID 5 or RAID whatever it is, um, but, the, um, but it doesn't help if someone robs or if you yeah. have an earthquake, we're here in San Francisco, or a fire or water or whatever. So having it not only backed up, but backed up off-site is... Um, very useful. There are some good uh, online resources um, to uh, upload, uh, and we'll, we we can put some uh, some links to a couple of those. Um, I know, Aaron, you did some research on that. Mosey, uh, actually, uh, well, Ron actually did it. Uh, Ron, Ron Brinkman Mosey. has a blog post from from a few days ago about Mosey, right? Which so, just went to one point on the Mac. And Mosey's great. I, I feel like sometimes I go through too much data <laughs> to to get to get it up there. I shoot too many photos, and so. Uh, but I think that online sources are good. I'm a little afraid of having somebody else. I wouldn't use that as my only backup. I would use that as another backup for the photos that I have on Drobo or whatever to make sure that I you know had it there. But I don't think I would. That would be the only place that I would put them. I mean, you know, you're putting your your photos in somebody else's hands uh, to take care of it. I think that the long term, just to geekify for one second, because um, we haven't been geeky at all today, um, is uh, uh, is that the future of this is going to is going to revolve around ZFS, which is a, a sun um, disk system that Apple is slowly in, incorporating into, into what they're doing. Um, essentially, what that allows you to do is have a cloud of drives. It's kind of like RAID on RAID five on zero on steroids. You know, it's it's a cloud of drives that has a cloud of information, and you can add or subtract, you know, and it does what a RAID 5 does in, in many ways. Um, there is a great, if you're listening to this and you want to know what ZFS is, I'm not going to get into it here. What you, what, you should, what you should do is you should, you should uh, go to MacBreak Tech. <laughs> That's what and, you should do. And those guys spent a whole hour talking about ZFS. And um, uh, so you can, get, you can see that on Pixelcore.tv. It's, it's definitely worth checking out. And we can now skip to another question. Scott, do you have another when, question? When will it get there, by the way, Alex? When will we see ZFS? Um, I, you know, I think we're going to probably start seeing it. You know, it's starting to come out already, but but to becoming useful, maybe two or three years, I think. Oh, so right. I mean, it's it, it it's we're not it's not going to be something that all of us are using probably for another five or ten. But when we look back on on what all this other stuff that we're using uh, now is, uh, it's going to you know seems silly well i'm going to get to the next question but before i do alex i want to quickly say that uh, this week in photography the podcast wouldn't be possible without a lot of help from our friends at audible audible audible.com i love audible if you go to audible.com slash twip t-w-i-p you can get a free downloadable book that's something we've worked out with them for our listeners it's only available right here and for first time guy first time you have to be first timer and you sign up and there's no obligation and you know there's like forty five thousand books to choose from it's pretty yeah. amazing and the service is easy it'll work on your iphone your ipod your computer pretty much any portable media player um we we selected them as a sponsor amongst several people that wanted to sponsor us because we knew that they did a good job and we also figured is a good fit because if you're downloading this podcast you wouldn't be necessarily adverse to downloading a book and they threw in the free book deal to kind of sweeten the pot and every week to help you figure out what 
you might want to look at when it comes to a free download. We give you an honorable pick of the week. And, and this week, we've got Aaron Mailer here to uh, give you a selection. <laughs> I can give you a brief overview of it. Um, book this week is I Was, uh, lowercase I, as in iMac, uh, How I Invented the Personal Computer and Had Fun Along the Way, and it's written by none other than Steve Wozniak. Uh, so it, it, uh, it definitely... It, it, the, the book definitely exudes Steve <laughs> in his style, no question about it. Um, it's uh, got a lot of coverage of his uh, of his pranks, which he is very, very well known for. But uh, it's pretty much, it's a very anecdotal type of book. Um, it skips from point to point chronologically through his life from, uh, from a kid all the way through modern day. And uh, talking very heavily about his experience, as he says, and, and I agree, invented the personal computer. Um, but uh, a lot of humor in that book, certainly. Um, and uh, I think it's really a, it's going to be an enjoyable listen for I the most part. Really I think good. it's a good book whether you're a Mac or a Windows person. Here's why. Yeah. Because this is yeah. the guy that basically made it possible for you to use a disk drive. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. I don't care what computer you got now. You probably wouldn't have the disk drive in it if it weren't for Waz because he invented the disk drive controller, which really made the whole personal computer thing work. Mm-hmm. He's an amazingly yeah. talented guy. He is very funny. We see him. Those of us that live in San Francisco, yeah, you see him around. We see him around. He rides around on his his little <laughs> and he and he's. What's, I think, what's that thing called? I think he's the only the one. That, I think he's the only one that doesn't make me feel like I have ADD. Yeah, he, <laughs> and, and he'll show up to events and and he'll stand in line with regular folk. It's great at Apple events, even though I'm sure he could call Steve and get in. But he will very come. He will yeah. come and and during the iPhone launch. Yeah, he was he was standing in he line. Was standing with in line. Else. Well, he was standing on his Segway. Oh, there's that in line. <laughs> um, and and he often just hangs out with regular folks. He'll yeah. sit and talk with anybody. Really, really fantastic guy. Uh, yeah, he, I have not met him, but I know that he is a beloved guy. He's he a is, beloved yeah. figure in in you know the computer industry. And I, I wish I'd have seen how he and Steve worked it out because, you know, Steve is not at all that way. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that what happened was is that when we look back in, into the past, what, 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 all of it's all fiction. And it turned out that there was actually one person. There was one Steve. I see. And, and, and at some point in time through a crazy medical experiment or, or nuclear explosion, it split the Steves. I see. And it that split was it. the Steves, and 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 one w- went was, and one went went jobs. <laughs> I got you. You know, and and I think that I think that that's that's what happened because they they do seem like polar opposites. Well, if you want to know about this particular Steve, this being I was by Steve Wozniak, why don't you head on over to Audible? Remember audible.com slash twip. We thank them for their support. Next question I have, Alex, is from a guy named Alex, but I'm assuming it's not you. Uh, yeah, I like to send questions in. Okay, it could be you. You're just testing to see if we get to yes. your question. It says, hi, guys. Love the podcast and listen every week. I have a question that I would love to see answered on the next Q&A show or whenever else. Can you expand on photo contest? How do you determine the type of shot that is likely to be successful? How do you judge photo contest? And, um, you know, going beyond that, can you offer tips for putting your best foot forward in photo contests? Steve, have you judged any photo contests? Uh, yes, I've actually judged many, many photo contests. I and that. I... I would have to tell you guys, I, I would hate for uh, maybe some viewers to see how photo contests are judged because, you know, contests like, you know, the big ones like World Press or whatever, I mean, the image might be on there for like a very, very short time, split second. And if it doesn't grab someone's attention right then, it's never coming back. And I think, you know, th- this is this is the, the this is how 
contests are judged at the highest level. It's it's really kind of an emotional reaction. Either you react to something, you know, emotionally, visually when you see it, and then you can start to, you know, you keep it in, and then it goes to the next round, and you can you can um, you know discuss things and talk further. But the bottom line for people entering is if there's something kind of wrong with the picture um, chances are it's not going to go far unless it's something spectacular the content is amazing or the mood or whatever but I mean you really have to be a tough editor and 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 I think it's important if you enter contest look at kind of what won and then and then look at your own stuff and just you know just because you didn't win doesn't mean it shouldn't have won because it's so subjective yeah, it's very subjective, and I've I entered contests before that I know that my picture was the best picture. At least I thought so. And exactly, I didn't, I didn't win, and I've entered the same picture in the same contest the year after just for GP and did win. So it's got a lot to do with the judges and their personal taste. You can always count on a couple of things helping out. Number one, look for visual acuity. Have an image with a lot of oomph, a lot of impact right away. And like Steve said, if there's anything, and I mean anything wrong with it, forget about it, because you're not going to be able to sit in front of the judges and go, well, you know, I would have got that little lamppost out of there, but I just, I couldn't lean over far. They don't care. They, you're up there for eight seconds, and then if, if it's not right now in my face that I like it, move on, because there's thousands of entries. So, your very best images, I'd say divorce yourself of the emotional connection you have with your photography by getting somebody else involved that doesn't have that same connection to the imagery and having them be brutal. And we've got a place where you can do that free of charge up on the, the Flickr form. You can go to our critique form, put your images up there and tell people, be brutal, find out what's going on and then look at that, learn from that and do look at, at the images that have won previous versions That's of the contest. That's always a good indicator. In fact, if you look at the images we've selected in our, our bi-weekly Flickr challenge, you'll see, you'll see my taste as a judge because you'll see that I've picked images that are really impactful as a judge i like cookies thank you i like cookies <laughs> so the so the uh last question that we have uh coming up here and this is we're going to actually this is a question for everyone we're crowdsourcing this question so this uh um this is at the very end here and it is um from carl uh regman and uh, he said, he says, um, uh, I work at a university teaching students with disabilities how to use assistive technology. One student is a great photographer but has a degenerative disease and is in a wheelchair. Can you point me towards anyone who may have ideas of how to help the student keep taking his great photos? So this is not going to be a question that we're going to answer here. Because we don't have the answer. We don't have the answer. But we think that out of the thousands of people that are listening to the podcast, maybe some of you do. So if you do, please come up to Twip Photos. Photo. Uh, I'm sorry. Go up to the our um, Twip photo at our group in the Flickr um, area, and uh, and let's have a discussion. If you if you've got ideas, get up there. Let's see if if someone can come up with some ideas. I'm sure that there's a bunch of you that have some ideas. Or, or if you have links, you can use our delicious Twip ideas. That's an excellent idea, tag. actually. And and by the way, yeah, you you, you really want to be using that delicious. We use that all the time as we put together these notes. So uh, so it's definitely important. Delicious. Just tag it Twip ideas, and uh, and we'll see it. It'll be in the list. So it's definitely worth uh, worth checking out there. And I'm really sorry to say that. 
those of us in the studio are sitting here with like nine pages of questions that we very ambitiously thought we would get to, but this just yeah. takes a lot of time. And and we and we've heard from the audience they like the fact that our show stays around an hour, so we're going to cut it off. But you keep sending them in, and we'll keep getting. Maybe we'll do this once a month. I think we should do it once a month. Yeah, because it's a lot of fun. We'll still try to answer at least a couple of questions every week. Right. And um, the the things that uh, you know that I like is that that I do get a really good sense, Alex, from the questions about the general topic areas that we should be looking at. It definitely at. gives us a lot of, even if we're not answering the questions, it gives us a lot of great ideas about what we should be um, you know, covering in the future. So definitely keep on sending those in. Uh, next week we've got uh, from uh, Aperture 2.0 uh, author, Richard Harrington. He's an author of a lot of stuff. Uh, but Richard yeah. is one of the best best digital you know software teachers there is yeah and this is fantastic he's the co-author with uh, orlando luna of the new apple certified aperture 2.0 book right and that book's about to hit the streets and that's very timely of course because aperture 2.0 is out actually 2.1 and uh, rich is going to come give us a little sneak preview of the book and as well talk about Aperture. We've covered Lightroom quite a lot lately thanks to our pal Frederick who's here with us every week. So we're going to start giving a little equal time to Aperture. And uh, Richard is incredibly intelligent and uh, a really nice guy. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to having him on the show. And uh, for the tip of the week, do you guys have a tip? I, I, I could probably have a tip. It's been a while since you did I haven't given a tip for a while. So, um, <laughs> so I have a tip and that is uh, when you're not shooting... A lot of a lot of these cameras will do a lot of work for you. So they'll, you know, you can set your camera to auto and and or you can set it to different pieces, but and go out and start firing. Uh, and you know, point and shoots especially. And a lot of you listening uh, probably have point and shoots or you have something set to auto a lot. Um, I highly suggest that when you're not shooting, you know, you're not at a wedding, you're not at your, you know, you're not shooting at something you want to grab. In between those times, uh, to start setting your camera all the way to manual. You know, so start playing around with going com- as much manual as, as your camera will allow. And the reason is, is that I think that it, it, it's definitely a great way for you to uh, understand what's going on. I think that a lot of times uh, people don't understand aperture. They don't understand shutter. They don't understand all these things because they're constantly, the camera's just figuring it out, figuring out their exposure for them. And as you start to play with that, uh, you know, stepping into that, a lot of the photographers that we know, you know, that we watch and everything else, a lot of us started with, you know, we didn't have a choice. I mean, it was all manual when we bought the camera, you know, and so we had no choice but to figure out how all of this stuff happened. But now we have a lot of crutches that, that help us. But to make that next step as a photographer, um, a lot of times it's really important. I find that even I, when I'm in a pressure situation, I'll set it to typically aperture priority. So I'm not worried about it. But I find that even that I, I tend to be turning off because... You know, I want to do something other than what the camera wants to do, especially if you're in challenging lighting situations. You, the camera is going to do something automatically that you don't want to do, and you're going to keep on taking the wrong photo, uh, you know, uh, or, or a, a poorly exposed photo. And understanding how to do that yourself uh, is an important skill to have. I agree. The tip. The anyway, tip. So that's, that's my tip for the day. And uh, Steve, where can people find you on the web? Uh, well, stevesimonphoto.com. I'm, I'm due for a kind of reconfiguration of that, but uh, right. it's still up and, and, and they can find me there. Excellent. And Scott? Well, I'm always hanging out on our blog at twipphoto.com, but um, also you can follow my various meanderings at uh, Twitter because you and I are both Twittering lately. Uh, I'm, try- I'm trying not to say it. I'm trying not to say that it's I It's an addiction. Uh, you can follow me at uh, twitter.com slash scottborn, all one word. Uh, if you can't remember my name, just think of the world champion skateboarder because he's also named Scott Bourne. <laughs> there you go. And mine's Alex Lindsay. Uh, now, Steve, are you Twittering? 
Uh, no, I am yeah. not. I'm, I, I, yeah, I'm embarrassed to it. say. No, don't I be will. embarrassed. It's an addiction. Once yeah. you go down that path, you know, you can't yeah. You, can't you share stop. mindless details about yourself as if people oh, okay. care. <laughs> first, first, I'm going to find out what Twittering actually is before yeah, I... Yeah, there you to. go. You know, you, the problem is you can't understand what Twitter is until you actually Twitter. But that's all we're going to talk uh, about it because we, we've been... Too many of our podcasts have been going way down the Twitter path and then we get, <laughs> then we get complaints. And uh, once again, I want to thank Aaron uh, Mailer for joining us. Hey, Aaron. Are you still there? And uh, thank you so much. I mean, Aaron is the one that kind of ties all this stuff together. So uh, uh, he is a fantastic producer, and um, and we're having a great time here. So uh, anyway, thank you very much. Uh, Until next week, you can put that cap right back on.